Hello and welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. The only podcast that I've found that's going issue by issue through DC Comics history from the very beginning at Action Comics number one. I'm your host, as always, Nick Byers. Welcome back. It's another beautiful Monday, or if you're Garfield, another stupid Monday. And uh, we're back, and we're going to cover some uh, some great Golden Age issues. Uh, and we're going to be covering in this episode, Detective Comics number 41, Adventure Comics number 52, and Flash Comics number 8. Uh, they're all, all take place in June of 1940. Uh, so, as always, we're going to set the scene with some real-world history of while these issues were on stands or, or becoming available at newsstands. Uh, what was going on in the real world. And weirdly, the beginning of June is a very, very happening time uh, in 1940. So it's uh, we're going to have a lot more tidbits of, of historical events uh, than normal. So let's start. June 2nd, 1940, the masked crime fighter character, The Spirit, first appeared in the American Sunday comics. Uh, the Spirit would later uh, go on to have a sort of uh, co-op adventure with Batman in in the the series miniseries Batman and the Spirit. Uh, June 3rd, 1940, the last British troops were evacuated from Dunkirk. I say British specifically because there were French troops still there, and and there a lot of them won't get out unfortunately. But we'll move on to that at a later date. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Minersville School District versus Gabitis or Gabitis. Uh, this basically this said that schools could compel students to salute the flag or do the Pledge of Allegiance despite it going against their religion, specifically Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses got a lot of flack for this because it seemed um, or it gave off an un-American uh, sort of vibe. And at this point in time, a lot of nationalism is happening as the war in Europe is is you know getting worse and worse and worse and, and Americans are still staying out of it they're they're getting a lot of nationalism in America this decision was later overturned in 1943 because that it goes against the freedom of religion all that kind of stuff uh, it's a very bad it's a very bad decision in my point of view the original not the overturning the overturning of course is great but the 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 initial decision i think is a real overstep by the the federal government uh, June 4th, the Battle of Dunkirk and the subsequent evacuation ended with the overnight evacuation of 26,175 French troops. At 10.20 a.m., the Germans occupied the city of Dunkirk and captured the remaining 30 to 40,000 French troops. Total evacuated over the six or seven day uh, Operation Dynamo uh, evacuated 338,226 troops. So uh, overall... I think it did a good job, but unfortunately, you don't want to have to retreat and evacuate, and you don't want to leave that many troops behind. But what can you do? June 7th, the character of Daisy Duck first appeared in the Disney cartoon Mr. Duck Steps Out. Uh, obviously, she is the love interest of Donald Duck, the, uh, the very angry, um, weirdly speaking, duck uh, of, of Mickey Mouse uh, fame. June 9th, the French government fled Paris. This would... Uh, put into effect the Vichy government of France, which is a uh, German-backed and German-supporting government that would sort of turn Paris and all of France into a German sort of stronghold uh, situation, uh, which is bad for 
French people and good for the Nazis. So June 10th uh, at 6 p.m. Benito Mussolini appeared on the balcony of the Palazzo Venezia to announce that in six hours Italy would be in a state of war with France and Britain joining alongside the uh, Nazis to form the Axis powers in, in World War II which would later be joined by uh, Japan. Uh, subsequently after this basically every other country uh, in Europe and um, America and Asia and, and every every prominent government throughout the world would uh, cut off ties with Italy in a uh, economic and political way uh, in order to cripple them initially uh, or, or as much as they possibly can. So uh, so that's not good. But then again, Italy didn't do a whole lot in World War II to help uh, the Axis powers. So that's it's it's really a wash. Uh, June fourteenth, the first inmates of Auschwitz and I'm going to butcher this, Theresienstadt concentration camps arrived. This would, of course, cause uh, numerous pointless deaths uh, of Jewish and uh, undesirable uh, people in Germany uh, and and across Europe. And finally, the drama film The Mortal Storm, starring Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart, uh, love me some James Stewart, uh, was released. James Stewart, after the war began, would go into uh, the armed forces and uh, spent some time in Europe uh, and then would come back and make a lot of different films than he originally made. Uh, We'll talk about that later. Uh, So let's get into our first issue. Uh, Detective Comics number 41, of course, is going to include Batman and Crimson Avenger, uh, released June 4th, 1940, with a cover date of July 1940. No debuts in this one. It is a very standard uh, Batman story and Crimson Avenger story. Although, I will say about the Batman story, it more prominently features Robin. Robin, of course, was created to be a stand-in for the audience of, of 10-year-old boys uh, or you know, prepubescent boys that bought and read a lot of these comics. So it's, if I find it very interesting that Robin... Uh, gets at least at least a story where he is the forefront. He is the um, protagonist uh, mainly of this story. It's very interesting. Uh, let's get to the production side of of this Batman story. Uh, it was written by Bill Finger, penciled by Bob Kane. Maybe we have no idea. Bob Kane paid a lot of ghost writers or ghost artists, I guess, and inked by Jerry Robinson. So let's get into it. So let's talk about the cover. Uh, it's a cover that doesn't, the action doesn't actually take, take place in this issue as, as most of detective and action comics of this time, or really any of the comics of this time, didn't really portray a lot of what actually happened in the issue of the, that the cover is depicting. It's a man is trying to stab Robin and Batman is diving from the sky, uh, very, very Superman-like. He, it, it's, I find it funny, his like cape and his legs are like covering up the comics, uh, so he's sort of like coming out from the book. Uh, it's pretty good. It says, here comes the Batman again. So, so that's, that's cool. Uh, the story itself starts out with uh, in a certain eventful night. Uh, important incidents take place that are to involve many people, including Batman and Robin, the boy wonder. Uh, a homicidal maniac makes good his escape from an insane asylum, and he, you know, says some crazy things as he climbs over the wall with a knife. And later on, uh, on the grounds of the fashionable private school for boys nearby, the superintendent is found murdered and strangled. Bum bum bum. Uh, 
While up in the dormitory of the same school, a boy named Ted Spencer opens his eyes to see a figure before him. And then we cut to the next day, and it's a newspaper of the New York world. So we are in New York at this time. Gotham does not exist yet. Uh, young boy disappears from Blake's boys' school. Attendant found murdered on grounds. Maniac escaped from a nearby asylum is suspected. We then cut to the home of Bruce Wayne, uh, the Batman, and young Dick Grayson, who is in reality Robin, the boy wonder. And Robin, or Dick, is, of course, like all young boys do, reading the newspaper. And he says, did you read about that murder and disappearance up at the boys' school, Bruce? And Bruce said, yes, I did. And I think we should lend a hand, a little support to the police on the sly, of course. So Robin, of course, or Dick, of course, wonders, how are we going to get near a private school? And Bruce says, well, it's funny you should ask, Dick. And so Bruce and Dick go to uh, the Blake's boys' school and enroll uh, Dick into classes there, uh, into becoming a student. So he's going to be going undercover, very much like he did in the first adventure with Catwoman in Batman number one. Uh, at the moment that they're in there sort of signing paperworks, paperworks, paperwork with the uh, head of the school, uh, Principal Blake, uh, a Mr. Greer comes in and says and, and yells at, at Principal Blake about being fired. And Principal Blake says, well, Mr. Greer, uh, you failed a, a pupil because he muddled a test. You should use more discretion after all. And Mr. Greer makes a very good point, and he's like, oh, I've, oh I'm, being, I'm being fired because I failed a student who failed a test? Well, uh, is it not because his father pays a lot of money to the school, and that's why I can't fail this student? Is that why? And that's why I'm being, that's why I'm being uh, canned, if you will. And uh, before Mr. Greer leaves, he says, I'll fix you and your snobbish school. I'll fix you all. So that's, I don't know what fix means in this connotation, but he's going to fix it. And uh, as he leaves, Bruce is like, well, that uh, Mr. Greer seems like he has it in for you. And, and Principal Blake says, oh, poppycock, he's harmless. Come now, I'll introduce you to the rest of the staff. Um, and so later we meet uh, Mr. Graves, the art instructor. And he, you know, he says, oh, he seems like a nice guy. He's like, oh, another pupil to absorb the fine points of art. I shall make a master craftsman of you, my boy. And Bruce points out that uh, Mr. Graves is a, seems to be a master engraver because he's got a wonderful engravings hung on his wall. And uh, Mr. Graves says, oh, those are nothing. I would I'd like to show you some really fine work I've done. They are masterpieces. Uh, then suddenly another man enters, and this is Mr. Hodges, the history instructor. Um, and he gives everybody the cold shoulder. He says, oh, welcome to the Blake School, and now if you'll excuse me, good day. And he just kind of walks off. And uh, so so Bruce and, and Robin, Bruce and, I don't know why I call Dick Robin, uh, and, and I call Bruce Bruce. Dick and Bruce both kind of acknowledge, huh, we got the cold shoulder there, that's weird. Then... As Bruce is getting ready to leave and, and leave Dick here to be undercover as a student, he says, uh, you know, you know, be careful. Uh, there's an escaped maniac on the loose, uh, but you, you got to find him and the missing boy. And you know how to contact me if you find anything. So, so good luck and be careful. Uh, Dick uh, immediately sort of gets himself into being a, a boy in a school, uh, even though he's never been a boy in a school before. He's he lived in the circus, so he's a very good actor. All that training, good. And he 
he hears uh, from uh, another student that Ted Spencer kept a diary uh, or a journal if he doesn't want it to seem girly. I, it's fine. Diary or journal, it's whatever. I just know that some boys can be that way. Uh, that that night, Dick dons his Robin costume and uh, goes to search in Ted Spencer's room. He looks around on his desk and finds his diary that the police were unable to find because it was covered like a, a textbook. And I don't know what he means by that. If he means like back in the day when I was going to like school and had books, you could make a book cover to protect it uh, with like a paper bag, um, like a brown paper bag. If that's the sort of situation, because I don't know if his school was like my school, but if you damaged it, you had to like pay for it. So, and also just to be cool, because then you could draw on the book, uh, or you could get those sort of uh, like stretchy ones that had cool designs. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, so he finds the diary, and he finds the last entry that Ted made, and it starts out like this. Last night, I saw a masked man walking down the corridor. I wonder who the masked man is. I'm going to tell Mr. Blake, the principal, about it. Suddenly, a hand reaches in from off screen and grabs the diary out of Robin's hand. And he sees a, a man uh, dressed in a, a hat and coat that looks a lot, like from, from first glance, like Clayface. I thought it was going to be a Clayface mystery, but I was like, wait a minute, I don't think Clayface is in this one. And it's, it's not, so just, you know, get Clayface out of your head. But uh, he steals the diary from, from uh, Robin, and uh, they begin to fight. Uh, Robin, you know, punches him, gets in a good, good shot there, and then he's going to rush at him to, like, tackle him. But uh, the masked man hits Robin over the head with a wooden chair, kind of snaps it over his head, and rushes out of the room. Robin, of course, is kind of shaken, and he runs out, but once he gets to the hallway, the man is gone, and he has no idea where he's gone. So, Robin heads back to his room and uh, opens up his belt buckle, and inside is a wireless phone. I thought it said a, it said a tiny, capable wireless. I thought he meant a tiny, capable wireless telegraph, uh, because, I mean, wireless telegraphs were a thing, uh, but it's a phone. So, he puts in Basically, he puts in earbuds and uh, begins talking to uh, Batman, calls Batman. And Batman is outside, and he has a little, uh, basically, like, if you know what an old phone looks like, like a really old phone, uh, where they had the, the sort of cone you put up to your ear, and then there was a cone on the actual device that you spoke into. Basically, one of those cones is coming up from from Batman's belt buckle. And so he's like putting his chin down against his chest and talking down towards his crotch. <laughs> and so it's a, there's, a, there's a panel, which I will be posting for Primo panels, of Robin and Batman both just looking down at their, at their belt buckles and just talking into it. Just two normal guys having conversations with their belt buckles. Just nothing to see here. And... Robin basically tells Batman everything that, that happened. And Batman says, oh, the diary mentioned the principal, Mr. Blake. Why not search his rooms? Maybe he knows something. So we then cut to a large, gloomy room where a man stands reading. It's the masked man. He's reading the diary. And he sees that the diary mentions him. And uh, he then burns it so that there's no more clues about there being any sort of masked man in the school. Uh, Robin has at this point 
gotten outside the building where Principal Blake's room is, uh, and he's going to climb up a vine to get inside of it. As he's about halfway up, he hears cries for help, so he quickly jumps down and runs around the corner where he finds the escaped maniac from the insane asylum, uh, having stabbed and killed uh, the janitor of the school. Um, The maniac then notices Robin and comes at him. Robin does a cool judo move to sort of like lift the maniac over him with his own momentum. And then Robin does this very funny two two panel thing where he says, and now I grab your hand thusly. And he grabs him by the forearm. And then he says, over you go, thusly. Uh, Thusly must have been Robin's uh, word of the day on his word of the day calendar. So he's using it as much as possible. So he flips the guy over and sort of punches him in the face to knock him out. And then uh, a couple police officers are coming around the corner and Robin makes his escape from the scene. Uh, And then we cut to the next morning where uh, the students and the teachers are all kind of gathered around because the police are here and the maniac has been caught. And it seems like the case has been solved. But both Dick and Mr. Hodges don't think so. To themselves, privately, they think, hmm, the case can't be closed. We haven't found uh, the, the missing boy. And Dick, of course, knows about the masked man. But Hodges only knows about the missing boy. And so he thinks, well, have you forgotten all about Ted Spencer? Like, where is he? Uh, so so they're, both, they're both like, this case isn't closed yet. Uh, we then cut to that night uh, where Robin is now going to search Principal Blake's room's like he was going to the the night before. And he climbs up the vine into the window and finds Principal Blake murdered in his room. Uh, We then cut to the next morning. The body is discovered. The police investigate, and they arrest Mr. Greer, the uh, teacher who was recently fired for failing a student. And they, they talk to him. You know, they're badgering him. They're coming at him from all sides. They're like, you did it. You said you were going to fix him. You wanted revenge on principal blake and the school for firing you and greer is adamantly no 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 i'm innocent i'm innocent and then the comic does something quite interesting i find it very interesting i've never seen this before in any of the golden age comics that i've read so far it's a sort of panel that says who do you think is the mystery murderer who you who do you think is the masked menace check which person you think is guilty and then underneath it has five boxes of all the possible suspects. It has Greer, the suspected one, the one who's arrested. Blake, the pri- was it the principal? Was it Graves, the eccentric art teacher? Was it the escaped maniac? Was he the masked man? Or was it Hodges, the mysterious history teacher? So it's kind of bringing the reader in on the mystery, like make a guess before you finish the comic and see if you're right. See if you're just as good of a, a, a detective as Robin and Batman. We then have a conversation between Batman and Robin again where they're talking to their belt buckles like normal people. Um, and Robin says, oh, the police are on the grounds now because they feel that the case is closed. Or, no, they're off the grounds. Sorry, because they feel like the case is closed. Um, uh, and Batman says, I still think the case is open. Uh, tonight I want you to patrol the house while I watch the grounds outside the school. Um, and we, we, we've got to find something. So Robin is, is patrolling the, the hallways when he sees the masked man um, coming from Principal Blake's room. Principal Blake is, of course, dead, so that, that, that excludes him from being the masked man. Um, the masked man goes into a classroom, 
and Robin sort of watches him and, and sees him push a button or move aside the blackboard and an entrance or a secret tunnel is behind it. Robin then goes into the classroom and uh, opens up the blackboard himself and uh, goes into the secret passageway, following the masked man's lantern uh, as he is making his way down it. The tunnel, uh, the secret passageway, opens up outside of the, like, a ways away from the school uh, into, like, the the wilderness or the mountains or something uh, nearby. And Robin follows the masked man to an old dwelling nearby. Inside, Robin sees the masked man and uh, three of other men, and he discovers that they are counterfeiting money. Uh, they're counterfeiting dollars uh, here in this in this school, and this group of you know counterfeiters are talking about how Blake made a lot of dough by you know getting in with them, like sticking you know having them be a part of their group. Um, but and when he wanted to quit, we fixed him. A boss, and uh, the mask says, "Yeah." And now, so that this kid don't talk, I'll fix him. And Ted Spencer has been tied up to a chair in this room uh, this whole time. And uh, at that moment, the door bursts open, and Robin flies in with an avalanche of strikes. It says, "An avalanche of strikes," and he is uh, surrounded by these dudes. He's going to take them all on, uh, all one v four, even match. Uh, and just at that moment, Batman says, you're in fine form, Robin, but I think you could use some help. And they all, all the bad guys turn around and say, oh, Batman, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And uh, then Batman and, and Robin, uh, you know, make a short work of these these goons. Uh, but the masked man uh, is escaping out of the door. And Robin says, he won't get far. And so Robin pulls out his sling because, uh, I mean, he doesn't have batarangs or rob- robinarangs, Bur- birdarangs at this point. Uh, and Batman also doesn't really use batarangs a whole lot. I think he's used them once or twice. Uh, where So Robin gets his sling and throws a-, a rock at the back of the head of the Masked Man, knocking him down. And they pull off his hat and mask, very Scooby-Doo style, and say, Graves, the art teacher, I don't understand. And Batman says, I think I do. You remember Graves here is a master engraver. What would be more simple than for him to engrave the plates to make money, counterfeit money? So Batman kind of lays out that Graves and the principal were partners. And Graves used to sneak out of the tunnel uh, to get to this counterfeiting building. Uh, But one night he was spotted by Ted Spencer. Um, And so Ted Spencer went to the principal, to Blake, to tell him that he saw the masked man uh, in the school. Blake told Graves, uh, who then kidnapped Spencer uh, so that he wouldn't tell anybody else. But then Blake got panicky, and Graves killed him. Uh, and then uh, tonight he came back to steal Blake's hidden stash of money that he had in his office. And um, so now, so they've, they've solved the case. And the final panel is uh, Robin, or I guess, sorry, Dick, asking Bruce... Uh, how did I do on this case? Okay. And Bruce says, all I've got to say is, if you're as terrific as you are as a kid, I pity the criminals when you're gonna when you're grown into a man. And then it says, Robin, the original boy wonder. I don't know why it under it says original and then underlines it like there's been multiple. There hasn't at this point. Dick is going to be Robin for like 40 years, maybe? Like he's gonna be Robin for a long time. 
Uh, but Robin, the original Boy Wonder, will be back in Detective Comics to thrill you again in another exciting and fast-moving adventure with the Batman. So that's the that's the Batman story. Um, I think it's pretty good, I would say. But let's move on to the Crimson Avenger story in this issue of Detective Comics. It, of course, was written and drawn by John Letty. Uh, he's, he's soloing it. He's like, 1v1 me, Crimson Avenger. Uh, so let's get into it. This uh, Crimson Avenger story starts off with some men uh, loading a truck up with boxes from a boat. Uh, uh, they're, they're long boxes. It takes two of them to, to put on. Uh, to the truck, they see a police officer coming towards them, and they say, oh, get the truck out of here, we don't want to be nabbed, and a couple of the guys stay behind, uh, because they've got to get the truck out of there, and the, and the copper says, what's going on here? Oh, you guys putting in that truck that just beat it out of here? If you ask me, it looks like smuggling. I better run you mugs in. And one of them says, oh, no, you don't. And they're like, got him. Shoot him in the chest, dead. But as the motorboat uh, that they are on drives away, uh, a shadowy figure steps out from his hiding place, the Crimson Avenger. And he goes over and investigates the uh, shot policeman. Uh, and then they see, or he sees a box, one of the boxes that was supposed to be loaded on the truck, is floating in the water. He drags it out into an old sewer tunnel. And there he opens it up. And inside he finds the dead body of a Chinese man. Uh, he must have, uh, the Crimson surmises that he must have drowned when he the box was thrown overboard. So he surmises that all the boxes must have been uh, filled with uh, Chinese people being smuggled into the United States. That, for me, that makes it seem like the Crimson Avenger is on the West Coast, like in LA maybe. I think that'd be fun. At this point in time, we don't really have set places where uh, heroes are, but in my headcanon, the uh, Crimson Avenger will now be set in L.A. The Crimson Avenger makes his uh, getaway from this area when two other cops uh, find the body and see the Crimson running away, and uh, they then sort of place him as the murderer, and the next day at the Globe Leader, uh, one of uh, Lee Travis's editors or, you know, Newspaper guys comes in and says, ah, these, these are headlines, boss. And it says, Crimson is seen leaving murder. And Lee Travis says, uh, okay, Mac, suppose you go down to headquarters to see if there's any more news on this case. And so Mac leaves. And uh, Lee Travis then makes a call to wing his, uh, his loyal valet. And he says, uh, Wing, I want you to head down to Chinatown and visit your relatives and see if you can find out if any smuggling ring is now operating down there. Uh, then meet me with the car tonight. So that night, uh, the Crimson Avenger and Wing drive down to Chinatown to where Wing's uncle says that uh, a smuggling ring has sort of moved in. Uh, his, his uncle is very plugged into the neighborhood, it would seem. Uh, so the Crimson Avenger and Wing go and go up the alley by this building and, and get a look inside. And inside are uh, some some gangsters and some uh, Chinese people. And they are uh, having a conversation uh, about how the, the Crimson is being pinned with the murder of the cop. And so that the police won't suspect any of them uh, in actually doing uh, the smuggling. 
the Crimson Avenger and Wing are about to make a plan to sort of ambush these guys when they're ambushed themselves by uh, some henchmen of this smuggling ring. They're brought into this building and tied up. And uh, they're going to be, I guess, ritually or systematically executed with a huge sword uh, when uh, Wing uh, pulls out a lighter from his pocket and burns uh, the Crimson Avenger's ropes so that he can get free. And as the sword is swinging down at the Crimson Avenger, he kicks the guy in the, in the sort of abdomen and then kind of judo throws him over him and then pulls out his gas gun and gasses all the boys. He then has Wing tie up uh, the gang, and uh, and the next morning, the Crimson uh, Nabs gang is the headline of the Globe Leader. And Mac comes in and says, ah, the Crimson got out of that jam. He must have a charmed life, boss. And Lee Travis says, well, Mac, nobody knows if he has a charmed life or not, but it certainly must be an interesting life for the Crimson. The end. The end. Just a six-page Crimson Avenger. Uh, I don't know if he'll ever get more pages, uh, but, I mean, he, he they're solid, if not short stories that are wrapped up rather easily and quickly, but, I don't know, you gotta fill the pages somehow, you know? So that is gonna do it for Detective Comics number 41, so let's move on to Adventure Comics number 52, where we have uh, The Sandman and Our Man. And Adventure Comics number 52 was released on June 6th, 1940, uh, with a cover date of July 1940. And uh, let's start with the Sandman story. The Sandman story was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig Flessel. Uh, So let's get into this issue. Uh, The Sandman issue starts off with... Uh, Wesley Dodds and Diane Belmont having a fun night at Diane Belmont's house, playing the piano, singing some tunes. And Wes, just out of the blues, like, hey, how long do you think I can get away with being the Sandman? I just, if anyone finds out that I'm me, Wesley Dodds, Playboy Socialite, is also the Sandman, I'll be ruined. She's like, ah, don't worry. You're going to be fine. When suddenly they hear a kathunk upstairs. And then we cut to uh, a panel of the saddest-looking burglar I've ever seen grabbing some gloves out of a drawer. He looks so sad. He's like, why am I doing this? I have a degree. I have a degree in business. What am I doing this for? Uh, so uh, Wesley runs up the stairs to get him, get find out what it is, find out what it is that has uh, caused such problems. And he sees the man uh, flee out the window and down the st- uh, down the driveway to the street and and get away. And Diane finds out that all he stole was a, a pair of gloves, but he left this amber apple. And I don't know if it's a real apple or if it's an apple made out of amber, the material, so it's like a valuable apple. But uh, Wesley's like, hmm, gloves. Now, why should he steal a pair of gloves? There's something funny about this. I agree. And uh, Diane says, well, well, this amber apple, Claudia Norrigan owns uh, one of these. Uh, maybe it's hers. Uh, and, and Wesley says, okay, you go over there and check that out. I will meet you over there as a Sandman. So Wesley goes home and changes into Sandman and drives over there in the Sandman car and sneaks into um, Claudia Norrigan's house uh, through the basement. Uh, and so he's going to sort of eavesdrop on the situation. Uh, we then see Diane talking to Claudia, and she says, Oh, a burglar left this amber apple. I thought it was yours. 
And Claudia is like, oh, a burglar? How dreadful. Let me see. She says, oh, yeah, it does look like mine. Uh, I'm sure it's mine. Uh, thank you ever so much, Diane. And Diane says, oh, I'm glad I could return it as she's ushered out of the house. And uh, Claudia's like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a family heirloom. Uh, and then after Diane leaves, Claudia's like, the fool, that irresponsible fool. Uh, I'll have to keep this thing now. Uh, so there's so something, someone's a fool, and I don't know if she's talking about Diane, or I guess we don't know. I know who she's talking about, but we as the reader at this point don't know if she's talking about Diane or if she's talking about the burglar or what. So she puts this amber apple into a secret safe behind a painting, as all rich people have at this point in time. Uh, and after she leaves the house, the Sandman comes in and cracks open the safe and finds a bunch of these amber apples. He says specifically a score, which is four score and seven years ago. 25 years? Yeah, 25 years. So 25 apples. Um, so... Uh, he puts everything, he puts them back in the safe and, uh, and wait for something to happen. He gets back into the Sandman car and, uh, makes his getaway. Uh, we then cut to what must be the next day, uh, or several days later, maybe, uh, Wesley Dodds is driving around in his car and he sees a newsy boy saying, big robbery, read all about it, the big gold robbery. And Wesley Dodds being a superhero says, well, boy, give me a paper. I got to find out about the crimes. And he looks at the Daily Globe and says, Morrison warehouse robbed of gold shipment. Woman's glove found also ample, ample, amber apples. So uh, so something, something's uh, fishy is afoot. So Wesley makes a beeline to Diane's uh, place. And, uh, you know, they both have heard about the, the things, the, the troubles that's happening. They said they found a, a, a robbery, and there was a glove, and it was Diane's glove, and she says, well, there are cleaners marks in those gloves, which must be like dry cleaners, slips or something in the actual gloves themselves. And so Wesley's like, well, you know what? We can handle this. He changes into the Sandman costume, and off they go to the police station. So uh, Sandman busts in, and he gasses a bunch of police officers, and uh, cracks open the evidence safe uh, where inside is a glove. Like, I don't know how big this police station is, but it's just a, it's a basically like a waist-high safe. And inside, it looks like there is the glove, not in a bag or anything, a glove, a magnifying glass, and an, I can't tell what it is, but like a box-shaped thing. So not a lot of evidence, not a lot of crimes with evidence happening in 1940, whatever city this is. So he, after, you know, after cracking the safe, he kind of jumps over the unconscious bodies of these police officers and Diane and him drive away. Uh, they drive over to Claudia Norgan's house uh, where she has visitors and uh, the Sandman sort of uh, goes around the back way uh, and has Diane sort of drive around the block so that she's not connected with the Sandman at all. And uh, so the Sandman sneaks in the back way of this house. Uh, where he overhears uh, a conversation that that uh, Norgan, what's her name, Claudia Norgan, is having with um, who we see is the burglar from the initial robbery, and she's yelling at him that he wasn't supposed to leave an amber apple at the Belmont girl's house. Uh, now she knows that I had one, and she might suspect me of belonging to the amber apple gang. So here's my question: I, I was confused about this when this happened. Why would she have an amber apple just out in the open? 
Uh, and how would Diane know that she has one if it's if by having one you're connected to this gang of criminals? Uh, it seems like a real leap of logic that Diane would know about it if it's such a bad thing to have one. But uh, of course, you have to make the story work, I guess. So you kind of throw logic out the window at times. So um, the 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 burglar doesn't really have uh, anything to say. And so uh, Claudia continues. She says that she's Diane Belmont's only alibi for the gold robbery because she was here at Claudia's house. Um, but she can just lie and say that she wasn't here. Uh, and it'll be, you know, her word against hers. So uh, they've, they've pretty much got it so that she'll be blamed for the uh, robbery. And, and this, I guess, also tied to the Amber Apple gang, which I guess, cool, fine, that's fine. Um, the burglar then asks if he should go get the gold out of the library. And uh, I guess, I don't know why I was in the library, but it's in the library and not here with the rest of the gang. Uh, she says, yes, bring it in here. And as he leaves the room, the Sandman sort of uh, gets him, gasses him, knocks him out, and then gets the gold and throws it in a garbage can outside so it's ready for him when he's ready for it. He then goes back into the big room, or he goes into the big room for the first time with the gang in there and uh, gasses a, a, a couple of them, and then one of them pulls a gun, and then it turns into a whole fist fight, and Claudia is trying to shoot him, but too many of her gang members are in the way. And so she makes her escape because it seems like the uh, fight is turning and she's looking for the gold. She finds it in the garbage can and then sneaks out of the house through that window and is climbing over the fence as the Sandman deals with the last members of the gang and uh, sees her going over the fence. Diane pulls around uh, around the block and the Sandman jumps in and they chase after Claudia he gasses her before she can see that Diane is driving the car so that Diane isn't connected at all with the Sandman. And uh, the Sandman carries her back into her uh, house, into Claudia's house, finds the other glove, and then calls the police, um, saying himself is the Sandman, but saying that he has caught this Amber Apple gang. And then the final panel is uh, Wesley and Diane going on a moonlit drive uh, just to prove that uh, Wesley is human and not really a boogeyman. And that is the end. Um, a fine a fine story, uh, I guess, if you exclude the fact that sort of the information like who knows what is kind of screwed up. Because I don't know why Diane would know, you know, as I said, why Claudia has an amber apple, but uh, other than that, it's fine. It's a fine Sandman story. So let's move on to the uh, Hourman story. And the Hourman story is uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Bernard Bailey. So let's get into it. This Hourman story starts with uh, a new person starting at the laboratory that uh, Rex Tyler works at. Uh, His name is Bob Wallace. Uh, and he's going to help uh, Rex Tyler get more work done because, I mean, Rex Tyler is a very good chemist, but he's very, very thorough and uh, very uh, slow in that way because he wants to make sure that everything is, uh, is you know, uh, correct and right and stuff. So we then cut to a week later when uh, Rex Tyler's boss is saying that this man is getting a lot of work done, even though he's not as thorough as uh, Rex Tyler 
And uh, Tyler says, I, I can't understand it unless it's because he's been working almost every night. Uh, which, like, hey, you know, back in the day, that actually meant something. But uh, uh, the next morning, the newspaper reads that uh, the hour man held up a bank last night and almost shot a watchman. And of course, Rex Tyler's like, well, that's impossible because I'm the hour man in his head, of course. Um, but so I got to find out what's going on. He uh, goes to the watchman. Uh, I guess the bank must be that night and uh, asks the watchman, uh, you know, if he if he remembers him. And the watchman says, yes, the suit was the same as yours. But uh, the fellow who took a, a shot at me, his eyes were sort of glassy. And so our man thinks, hmm, I see, possibly hypnosis. Uh, our man then returns to uh, the laboratory that Rex Tyler and Bob Wallace both work at. And turns on the radio to get some news, I guess. And uh, a news bulletin says, We interrupt this program to... Sorry, I should go... Flash! We interrupt this program to bring you news of a daring holdup less than 10 minutes away. The... Oh, sorry. 10 minutes ago, the hour man using tear gas held up and robbed the Palace Theater. Police have asked all citizens to be on lookout for this desperate criminal. Criminal. Sorry. I said criminal weird. Uh, so, our man says, Hmm, I'm a desperate criminal, am I? And uh, as he's finishing that sentence, uh, in walks uh, a man in a hat and suit, and he uh, collapses into a chair, and our man realizes that it's Wallace, uh, Bob Wallace. So he changes back into Rex Tyler's clothes and uh, awakens Bob Wallace with a glass of water. And Bob Wallace explains that he was walking along the street when he felt faint. And he got into this into the lab just in time to collapse into a chair rather than on the floor. Um, and Rex Tyler says, well, I'm glad I could help. Do you want to see a doctor? And Wallace says, no, 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 doctor. He'll kill me. He'll kill me. And Tyler says, get a grip on yourself, man. Maybe I can. And Wallace says, no, no, go away. And so Tyler has to leave. Uh, and uh, he finds on the floor so this is a really weird sequence on the floor he finds a bill wrapper from the Met, Met, metropolis theater now the news bulletin said palace theater so i don't think i think that possibly could have just been a a typo because this is supposed to sort of lead him to think okay so wallace is possibly connected to to the hour man situation because um, this this bill wrapper doesn't come up ever again. So the next morning, I think this is Rex Tyler. It's not said. He says, I can't understand this letter. It says that unless I keep my mouth shut, I'll be murdered by the hour man. I demand protection. And uh, the cop says, oh, I don't, I don't, it's probably some practical joke. Because uh, this person who is possibly Rex Tyler or possibly somebody else, it doesn't say has gone to the police station to ask for protection. Suddenly, a terrific blast rocks the building. Uh, and then into the into another room, a man in a blue suit, possibly the same man. I don't it, this this whole sequence is confusing because I'm not sure who anyone is. Uh, and he says, "Are you all right, chief? Like chief of police? Somebody bombed the building and we found this." And the police chief says, "An hourglass. That settles it. Get this hour man." We'll get this hour man if it takes every man on the force. So, so enough of that confusing nameless sequence. Uh, we then cut to Tyler's house, uh, and he has just taken his miraclo or miraclo pill uh, to clear the hour man's name. 
because uh, he's being blamed for stuff. Uh, he steps out of his apartment where he sees Wallace uh, getting into a car. Our man chases after the car and finds where Wallace lives and climbs up a tree to see inside the house to get a better look. Uh, when from down below, uh, a gangster, a, a hood, a thug, a hoodlum, uh, a henchman, uh, says, all right, bird man, come on down be sh- before I drill you full of holes. And he's got a gun. And so our man just literally jumps down on top of the dude and does like a like a gravity punch basically on him, knocking him out. And uh, the door of the house opens and out stumbles our another hour man who, after a struggle, it is discovered that it is Wallace and uh, and uh, our man is asking Wallace who's behind this. Uh, and suddenly a man comes out and says, I'll answer that. And he's got a gun. And he's got glasses on. And our man whips his head around and says, Dr. Snag. And uh, the guy says, yes, Dr. Snag, you thought you finished me, but I knew I'd get you with a decoy. I hypnotized Wallace and had him do my bidding. And now I'll kill you. Now, you may be very confused about who is Dr. Snag and why does our man know who he is? Well, that is because... Dr. Snag is from the last issue of Our Man, Adventure Comics number 51. I didn't remember that he had a name, or maybe I did. I don't remember. But uh, it's Dr. Snag from the wax dummies that came to life adventure that Our Man uh, dealt with last time. And apparently he, I I could have sworn he was killed, but maybe he wasn't. Uh, So he came back to get revenge on Our Man. Uh, Dr. Snag attempts to shoot uh, our man, he dodges. Dr. Sneg escapes. Uh, and if as he tries to chase after him into the house, the house blows up. Uh, and our man is, is fine, but uh, obviously uh, Sneg got away. And Wallace says that the doctor went to blow up the mayor's house uh, and that our man has to stop him. So our man rushes over to the mayor's house and uh, gets him out of his house just in time before the bomb goes off. Uh, at that moment, our man sees Dr. Snag get into a car and drive off. Uh, our man chases after the car and gets up alongside of it and uh, uses the tear gas from his ring uh, right into Dr. Snag's face. And Dr. Snag, in, uh, because of the tear gas, crashes his car uh, and presumably dies. Uh, either that or he is uh, captured. Uh, so later, the final panel... We see when the mayor gets this letter explaining about Snag and his use of Wallace, maybe they'll believe that I fight crime, not make it. Um, so I, I think as far as our man stories go, pretty pretty okay. Although, you know, just some sequences in there with like a typo, if whether or not it was the Palace Theater or the Metropolis Theater. And uh, that sequence in the police station with like, who was that guy? Uh like, why was he there for protection? All that kind of stuff. Uh, but other than that, a fine story uh, and a fine issue of Adventure Comics uh, as, uh, you know, as far as those things go. Uh, so let's move on to the final issue of this episode, which is going to be Flash Comics number eight. Uh, Flash, Hawkman, and then we'll summarize the Johnny Thunder story. Uh, released June 13th, 1940, with a cover date of August 1940. Uh, the Flash story is up first, as always, uh, and Flash was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Everett E. Hibbard. Uh, so let's get into it. 
this Flash story starts off with the Flash doing uh, one of his routine patrols that he does throughout the city. Uh, it's a standard of superhero literature. Uh, patrol is a thing that superheroes do all the time to find crime and stuff and stop it. Uh, he notices that a building that is under construction is crumbling and a woman is going to get crushed by the debris that falls down on top of her. But he, of course, runs at, at flash speeds and, and gets her out of the way. Uh, so she explains that, uh, well, the first, the Flash thinks that this building is being torn down because obviously it is not well constructed, but she informs him that this building's actually just being built. So he's like, wait a minute, what? They're building this building? That cement and brick is in, improperly made. Uh, so he runs to the, uh, what would be, I guess, the, the construction office of the construction site. And inside, two men are having a conversation. One is telling... Uh, uh, the other, that the concrete has to be better than it is. And uh, the one listening says, well, you know, hold, you know, it'll hold when it dries. Uh, so just, you know, it's 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 also 10 times cheaper. So it's really saving us a lot of uh, simoleons by using it. Now, it's just everything will be fine. Just leave it to me. We'll handle it. And uh, the the first guy says, well, you'll get me in trouble. Like I'm telling you, you're going to get me in trouble. So the Flash this entire time has been moving at speeds that so he can't be seen, a classic Flash uh, trope. Uh, so uh, the Flash then goes to investigate the building itself. And uh, while doing that, more of the building starts to crumble. And uh, the workers that are up inside of the building working on it are in danger, so he quickly, at flash speeds, uh, saves them all and brings them all down to uh, safety on the ground, and then he asks for a little information uh, from them. He is wondering how a new building could collapse like this all of a sudden, and everyone agrees that it's it's bad materials. Uh, the boss is, is being cheap, and uh, so the building is falling because of the, the cheap materials. Uh, because of because of profits, uh, so he's pro he's buying his materials from some big shot guy that that makes them, but he clearly makes shoddy uh, materials uh, on the cheap. But uh, but yeah, uh, the Flash then goes back to the uh, construction office and overhears another conversation between the two same men, uh, and the sort of boss of the site is like i'm ruined i'm ruined the building is caving in and the other guy's like don't be silly i'll tell you what to do uh i'll go up and i'll see js at once and he'll know what to do and the boss is like yeah go ahead whatever um so the the material salesman the the guy who is you know saying oh everything will be fine once it's dry he gets in his car and the flash also gets in the car and continues to move um the way he does so that he can't be seen Obviously, we know later on that with with like with Barry Allen and, and Wally West that just moving back and forth doesn't make you invisible because at some point in time your you know atoms are in one spot so they can be seen like light bounces off of them and they can be seen by the human eye uh, because I mean even 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 right now like the flash is not moving faster than the speed of light so uh, there's a little sort of uh, sort of uh, factoid uh, caption box uh, that tells why the, why the Flash can't be seen in this guy's car. It's because he's moving so fast that he, he can't be seen by the human eye. Uh, the driver, the material salesman, he feels like something's off about his car. 
Uh, it feels like there's someone in here watching him. And he happens to move his hand to where the flash is and hits him so he can feel him, but he can't see him. So he thinks an invisible man is after him. So he once he gets to the Cleaver Construction Company, he rushes inside and uh, is screaming about the invisible man. An invisible man has been chasing him. Uh, and the flash follows him up to the office of uh, the, 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 the big boss, uh, the president of the company. Uh, and he's like, take it easy. You know, what's all this about? And so Jenkins, we learn this salesman's name is, says that the building work had hold in place caved in. Uh, somebody we couldn't see saved the men's lives. I started here to find out what to do to avoid a scandal because we sold them cheap materials. And an invisible man rode with me in my car. Uh, so the president is going to call the chief. This 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 chain of command of this company is insane. So there's the salesman, Jenkins, who can easily talk to the president of the company, but then there's also a chief? I mean, I guess, now that I think about it, a lot of companies do have presidents, but they also have CEOs, which does stand for chief executive officer. So I guess the structure is pretty normal. That's on me. I was being dumb. Uh, so he, he, he rings up. He's going to ring up the chief. And, of course, this is 1940, so they do uh, a silly way of calling numbers, which is they uh, call the switchboard, and they say, give me Jigs 5-2202. So the Flash runs to the telephone company fast enough to see the operator uh, plug in the uh, cord, which is which connects the two lines. If you've never seen a, a switch operator back in the back in the day, they're basically plugging cords, like connecting cords, to different lines, which then connects the telephones that they're connected to, making a, a completed circuit, which then allows the conversation to happen. So the Flash sees what plug she plugs in and runs to the records room, grabs the uh, geographical information for where that plug leads, uh, that where that line leads, I should say, and he says it's uh, on the drive near 19th. Uh, so he rushes back out and he runs all the way to this house uh, on, on 19th Street or 19th Drive or whatever you want to call it. And he is met by a servant of the uh, owner of the house who is an, uh, a large Indian man. And, uh, of course, the large Indian man says um, in broken English, what you want. Now, I, I'm going to pause right there. So, of course, this is 1940. All of these comics are written by white guys. So there is that inherent 1940s sort of white supremacy sort of racism in there but i do want to just just one topic the british have uh been occupying india uh, in the real world and presumably in these comics since 1858 the idea that every indian person that we meet in america speaks in broken english is farcical because if it's 1940 these uh men and women would have to be older than 98 years old to have been born and raised in an India that that had no introduction to British English, let alone English at all. So the fact that all of them speak in a broken English is farcical. It's insane. Like this guy who I would say is probably in his 20s or 30s, he doesn't look like he's super old, maybe he's 40, who knows. But that means that at least his parents have been growing up in a country that that has had british occupation for 40 years you know if he was born in 1900 the british have been in india since 1858 so like 
the idea that he doesn't speak fluent English, or at least um, a more concise English that that uses all of the regular words and doesn't you know take out words and make this sort of broken sentences is just it's just it's just racist. So let's move on. Uh, the Flash runs by him, says, I want the chief, uh, so stand aside. He's in a hurry. So he runs in, and as he's running in, he overhears the conversation that he saw uh, the connection for. Uh, so uh, this chief of the company says, start a labor strike and blame them for dynamiting the building. Uh, so the Flash runs in and uh, is pretending to be the Invisible Man, as he does, and he says, listen up, windbag, call up that man again and tell him to ship good materials or I'll... Uh, so uh, at this moment, the chief yells and uh, and says, uh, he calls for his servant, Amsab, O-M-S-A-B. And of course, he comes in and says, you call, boss? And it's like, okay. Uh, and uh, this chief, whose name I don't know if we learn ever... Um, says that there's an invisible man in his room, get him. And while the Flash is distracted by Amsab, he, uh, the chief goes down a secret slide in the room, and uh, the Flash can't seem to find him now uh, after, after kind of getting away from Amsab and searching the entire house top to bottom. Can't find the secret passageway or anything like that. But the chief is watching him from behind a wall with a peephole, so he's now seen the Flash's face because, of course, the Flash doesn't wear a mask of any kind, uh, which is is buckwild to me, because it, when he takes off his hat, he doesn't like put on glasses like Clark Kent, where you can kind of be like, oh yeah, I see. He just is Jay Garrick. So, I just I always found that silly. Uh, his identity is just basically public. Uh, I mean, I guess public as much as you'd have to recognize him to know that he's Jay Garrick. But uh, so we then cut back to the building site and uh, the workers are now being fooled into uh, striking because they think that I don't I guess I don't know why they're striking. I mean, they should be striking because they're working on an unsafe building site. So they should just be striking in general. The Flash shouldn't be trying to stop the strike. He should be like, yeah, you should strike until they get good materials. Um, But the Flash does the opposite. Uh, the Flash says, don't be fooled by your bosses. They are trying to blame the collapse of the building on you. Get back to work at once. Well, sure, y- it, it, that's fair. Like, it, they will, it'll be, you know, the upper management against the people, the workers. But there's more workers than there are upper management. So uh, I, th- I just feel like maybe the, the strike would have probably worked uh, just in general. Uh, but the Flash says, if you go back to work, I promise that you'll get good materials and uh, you'll you'll be able to work safely. Uh, he then runs into the construction office to the boss, whose we, name we learn is Olsen, who is crying and complaining like, I'm ruined, I'm ruined, first bad materials, now a strike. And Flash says, back, uh, buck up, old timer, you haven't lost yet. Order good materials from a good contracting concern and put your men to work building a safe building. And Olsen says, but I'll be ruined by the higher-ups uh, that, that run this whole situation. That That is, you know, the construction company that is building this building. I can't just order whatever I want. It's the higher-ups that kind of are in charge. Flash says, nonsense. I'll deal with them. You do as I say. And he says, all right, but I'm, I'm a little coward and I'm kind of scared. Uh, so the Flash then runs to the construction company. So he's going to find some records 
that he can use uh, or give to a lawyer uh, so that they can take legal measures to stop this. So he uh, sort of behind the president's back uh, gets the safe combination, unlocks the safe, grabs the records, and puts the safe combination back before the president really notices and then runs to the district attorney and uh, gives him this evidence about, you know, bad, bad materials and, and building death traps and all this kind of stuff. And so the DA is going to, the DA is going to take the case, but he wants the uh, higher ups. He wants the chief to, to like confess to this sort of thing. So the, so Flash is going to go get a confession, which is standard, standard practice in superhero golden age comics we see batman do it all the time and superman all this kind of stuff so flash runs back to the chief's house runs by Amsab, and then runs into uh, a room where the maid is cleaning up and just and just straight up asks the housekeeper while being invisible like where did the chief go and she says well he went to the wrestling matches and then he accidentally runs into Amsab, who grabs onto him even though he's moving really, really fast and is invisible, Amsab is holding on to him. And the Flash then punches Amsab in the chin and completely knocks him out. But the Flash mentions that uh, his knuckles are nearly crushed uh, and that Amsab's jaw is like rock, but I must have broken said jaw. We then get an explanation of the Flash's punch. Uh, it basically boils down to the Flash can easily move about 800 miles an hour. So he's punching Amsab at 800 miles per hour, which, like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer of any kind or a physicist. But I just feel like anything, even as small as a fist, coming at your face uh, at 800 miles an hour would uh, annihilate your brain and splatter it all over the wall. Uh, and kill you Uh, because I just think I mean there's materials up in space you know like the size of a rock that are traveling at you know so many kilometers an hour that just punch holes straight through like the ISS and space shuttles and like really really hard materials I think a a fist would also break itself it would break itself and the, the head that it hits 800 miles an hour so but uh um Enough about the fact that the science in this fictional superhero thing doesn't work. Uh, it's just, it's. I just think Amsab should probably be dead from that punch. But we then uh, see the Flash running to Madden Garden, uh, where the wrestling matches are being held. So he he's you know he runs in. He does the classic Flash thing where he's running so fast that people's hats fly off and they think like a big wind has come through. He runs through the turnstile and spins it really bad, which is really going to mess up the the gate count. They're going to think like a lot more people came in without paying, so someone's going to lose their job. Uh, the the probably um, turnstile attendant will lose his job. The Flash thinks that the best place to look around would be from the mat from center from the center where the wrestlers are, which um which is uh stupid of the Flash. I'll I'll just say because. This entire time, he has been moving so fast that he's invisible. Why could he not just run through the entire, you know, Madden Garden, like, audience and just find the chief that way? He could move so fast that really nothing would happen until he found him. But I guess he has to pretend to be a wrestler. 
So he, he you know, uh, he says, uh, I'm going to be a wrestler. And the wrestler says, oh, wait a minute, you're not a wrestler. And he then throws one of the wrestlers just straight out the window. Um, then uh, it's time for the, you know, the wrestling is starting. So uh, Jones and Smith are, it's time for their fight. And uh, Smith was the guy that the Flash threw out the window. So the Flash says, I'll take his place. And he says his name is Armbreaker Smith. So it's a it's a wrestling match between Bruiser Jones and Armbreaker Smith. The chief, who knows what uh, the Flash looks like, recognizes him on the wrestling in the wrestling ring. I guess is what it's called. And he attempts to leave. He attempts to get up and uh, and run out. But the Flash runs from the wrestling ring to him and says, "Sit back down." Which again, I say, why couldn't you have just grabbed him? Uh, just running through the whole thing. But um, but uh, I digress. He says, you stay here. I just got to do this wrestling match. Why? Why does he actually have to do the wrestling match? I don't know. Uh, so he runs back to the ring and is, a pen- is going to start the wrestling match. But he sees that the chief is getting up again and trying to escape. Because, I mean, he really didn't do anything to stop him from leaving. Uh, so he throws the wrestler that he's wrestling up in the air. And then runs back and does the same with the chief. Throws him up in the air. Runs back and catches the initial wrestler and throws him back up in the air. And goes back to the chief and throws him back up in the air. And uh, finally, the chief says that he'll confess. And the wrestler says that he, he's going to start. He's going to take up knitting instead of wrestling after tonight. So Flash has won his wrestling match, his fake wrestling match under a fake name. And he gets a confession from the chief who later in the office of the district attorney says, I make cheap building material and force contractors to buy it with my strong-arm men. I'll sign the confession and go to jail. It will be my pleasure after that invisible maniac. The district attorney says, You've done a marvelous thing, Flash. The city will be eternally grateful. And the Flash says, It wasn't much. Besides, I had a lot of fun. And then, of course, it says, you know, There's more Flash in every issue of Flash Comics. Uh, you know, get at us, but be be buying our comics, please, for the love of goodness. We need to put food on our tables. Buy our comics. Um, so that's that's the Flash story in uh, Flash Comics number eight. It it feels like we've covered Flash and and Hawkman and stuff a lot more, but we're really only on issue eight. You know, uh, I guess they've just had so many adventures that it feels like we've been around them forever. Uh, but let's move on to the Hawkman story in this issue. Uh, which is, of course, as always, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Sheldon Moldoff. So let's get into it. Uh, It starts off with the villain uh, talking to us, the reader, about his plan. We learn about sunspots, the dots in the blazing old soul. Long a mystery to scientists, these sunspots affect all electrical, magnetic, and cosmetic rays that are known on Earth. One man, a Professor Kitsoff, has discovered how to bend these sunspots to his own uses. We then see uh, the ray that this Kitsoff has discovered to, to sort of bend the sunspots and their weird powers, which I don't know if that's true. I know sunspots are like a thing, but I do they affect electrical, magnetic, and cosmic rays that are known on Earth? I don't know. I should talk to a sunologist. A solologist? A solologist? Who knows? But he's basically uh, created a ray that bombards the sunspots with atoms, which I guess 
uh, do something to them to make them worse or, or, or in a specific shape. I don't know. Uh, but man, those atoms be traveling far. Those atoms be traveling far. You know what? This might sound crazy, but I don't think the science uh, is sound. Just to start off from the jump. Uh, but uh, Kitsoff uh, starts up his ray, which is not very big. It's a very powerful ray for being very, very small. It like sits on a desk. That's how small it is. Uh, but he shines it up through the sky, and a plane accidentally flies through it. And I guess those atoms bombarding that plane uh, set it on fire. And weirdly, we see a picture of a donkey uh, on the mountainside as the plane in the background kind of crashes to the earth. The donkey isn't mentioned, uh, nor is it important to the story, but it's just there. Just kind of chilling, just like being a donkey, and the plane is crashing behind it. Really normal mountain stuff. Uh, luckily for this uh, pilot uh, and us, the Hawkman was nearby and saw this crash. And it's like, well, that's weird. It The plane flew through that searchlight and then crashed. So he flies to the plane quickly to save the pilot, got him out just in time, and brought him to a stream for water and, and to sort of clean off the plane dirt, plane crash dirt. We all get so dirty in our plane crashes. Uh, so the pilot basically says yeah like i as soon as i went through that searchlight it just burst into flames so that's weird as if some weird intense heat had struck it uh, and i guess adam's moving at rapid speeds i guess would get hot but the hawkman flies back to the house or the manor that he saw the beam of light come from and he gets inside and he he finds the office with the uh, weirdly small ray in it he's like hmm, what a weird instrument when suddenly the door behind him slowly opens and a man holding a gun comes in and shoot and doesn't shoot. Sorry, I almost said shoots, but he just points the gun at him and Hawkman's like, don't shoot. I'm here to get some information about this accident. And uh, the, the the old man who we know is Kitsoff, the bad guy, says, oh, I'm sorry. I just I thought you were a prowler, a burglar doing some classic B&E. Uh, but uh, but if you've come to help, I, I of course I can help you. But. While he's talking, he flips a switch that, for some reason, for some reason he has the switch that turns the 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 ray bombardment, the atom bombardment machine, into just a normal searchlight. And uh, so he explains to the Hawkman, like, yeah, this is just uh, the world's most powerful searchlight that I've uh, created. I'm, I'm perfecting it to use for research on Mars. I don't know how, but uh, and why can't it be used on Earth? Is there something wrong with Earth? We don't need searchlights on Earth? Only Mars does? Uh, so the Hawkman's like, okay, uh, I'm sorry to disturb you. Uh, goodbye, and good luck, and Godspeed. Uh, the next day, uh, Carter Hall is talking to one of his uh, professors, uh, Dr. French, uh, about uh, something weird. Dr. French is saying that uh, the the like the strikes like the bombings and the wars that have been springing up in the last month or so seem to be connected to the sunspots. There's unusual activity, uh, but it's it's not normal unusual activity. He thinks it's the work of man. Someone has discovered their secret and is turning the world into a madhouse. Uh, so Carter Hall and him. Uh, head to the observatory to observe the sun, which I don't think you should stare directly into with a big telescope, but they're going to do it. 
And they discover that Dr. French is right. The sunspots are increasing tremendously. But only if there was something they could do about it. When Carter Hall suddenly says, Doctor, I'm going to draw you a picture. And he draws him a picture of the ray. And Dr. French is like, it's impossible. Or he, he doesn't say it's impossible. He says, it's possible by throwing atoms at the sunspots. And Carter thinks, then I'll take a look into this. Maybe that professor is up to something after all. Carter Hall then dons his Hawkman costume uh, and says that he's going to grab a mace to destroy the infernal machine of the professor. And we see the mace sitting on a table. But guess what? It's not a mace. It's a flail because it is not a rigid sort of uh, stick with a spiky ball on the end. It is a stick with a rope attached to a spiky ball, which I'm pretty sure is a flail and not a mace. Let me go look up the definition of a mace. Ah, yes, mace, parentheses, bludgeon, uh, a blunt weapon, a type of club that uses a heavy head on the end of a handle to deliver powerful strikes. A mace typically consists of a strong, heavy, wooden, or metal shaft, often reinforced with metal, metal reinforced with metal, featuring a head made of stone, bone, copper, bronze, iron, or steel. I don't see anything about a gosh dang rope, so it seems like maybe this is a flail, Sheldon and Gardener. Maybe you should learn what a, what a mace is. Uh, so he grabs this quote-unquote mace, and heads back to the professor's manor. And he's about to destroy the uh, the ray when uh, Professor Kitsoff, uh, expecting him to return, flips a switch and opens up a trap door beneath the Hawkman. But Professor Kitsoff is clearly an idiot, and this man with wings can fly. So he flies over the trap door and uh, smashes the uh, ray with the quote-unquote mace. And uh, But luckily... Uh, Professor Kitsoff doesn't, isn't sort of bound to use old weapons, and he pulls out a gun and shoots the Hawkman. Uh, shoots him right in the someplace, uh, and, and the, the Hawkman falls unconscious. Uh, and Professor Kitsoff says that I'm going, he's going to build a new machine after this one, which took years of labor, was broken and wasted. Uh, and he's going to build it far from the haunts of man, uh, which... He, okay, we'll learn later. He doesn't actually do it that far from away from the quote-unquote haunts of man. Uh, he says, uh, I must remove this body, lest I be accused of murder. Uh, then I shall take it with me to South America. Ah, yes, there's no men in South America. It's all jungle. Uh, I think he t- it's, a, it's another racist thing. It means away from white men. Uh, so Hawkman wakes up uh, in the cellar of the professor's home, locked in a box. Uh, and he uh, kind of gets his bearings. Uh, he It's not a very tightly uh, made box. There's lots of space in between the slats, uh, so his, like, wings can poke out and stuff, which will come into play later. Uh, so uh, as the professor and some moving men come down to the cellar, Hawkman pretends to be dead, and uh, Professor Kitsoff says, uh, take this uh, to the, I'm assuming, the harbor, and I'm going to load it on the ship that will take me to... South America, because, you know, air travel is not really, really prevalent at this time for regular people. Uh, So they load the box up in the back of the truck. They don't close the back because they're dumb. And so the Hawkman flies, box and all, uh, out of the truck uh, to a local lumber mill. Why he doesn't just sort of 
drop the box and himself onto the ground from like a safe distance to break it open? I don't know. So he uses a uh, a buzzsaw, the kind that they use in cartoons uh, uh, or uh, in real life to split logs in half. Uh, so he safely, we don't see it, but we see the we see the box almost touching the buzzsaw. And then the next panel is the Hawkman standing up and he's fine. So he did a good job. He didn't cut himself in half like in cartoons. He goes back to the professor's home, but it is empty other than the fact that the professor left his quote unquote mace. Uh, so the, the Hawkman then flies back out and finds the truck. He clearly did this in fast enough time that the truck didn't get to where it was going. He lands on the hood, forces the truck to stop, and then interrogates the men driving it. And, and they tell him that the professor went to La Hojas, L-A-H-O-J-A-S, which I don't think is a real place in South America. I could be wrong. Just did a quick uh, Google search. There is a resort uh, and club in... El Pajaral, sorry, my Spanish is terrible, El Salvador, called Los or Las Hojas uh, Resort and Club. So I guess technically there is a place called Las Hojas, but not La Hojas. Uh, so he's going to South America, which we already knew that. Uh, the Hawkman then just flies to South America, which I don't know how fast he can fly, but that's got to take a while. Then again, the Professor is going by boat, which takes, you know, a lot longer than flying. But the Hawkman can't fly that fast, can he? But he flies. He flies to uh, South America. He flies over the Andes Mountains, which it's pretty far into South America to be going. But uh, he's going to he's going to to South America, and he lands in the tiny town of La Hojas uh, and asks uh, a, a, a citizen of the town about the uh, the professor. And she tells him, yes, uh, he was here recently. He went to the high peak of Kaloda, okay, uh, to an empty hacienda there. Uh, Hawkman easily finds it because how many empty haciendas on a mountain can there be? He he breaks every one of uh, the, the machines that the professor has been creating. Uh, the professor hears this from another room and comes in where the Hawkman throws his mace straight at the professor's face. Like, with some force. It's like, it's flying at him. And the professor falls down. And, uh, like, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, he just, like, straight up murked this dude. This dude is dead. Uh, so two of the uh, professor's henchmen come in. And the Hawkman quickly dispatches them. Uh, and grabs the professor's body to fly off back to America to, I guess, bring him to justice. Even though, I guess, technically he didn't really do any crimes. Because, like, doing stuff to sunspots isn't really a crime. Because, like, no one owns the sun, you know? And, I mean, it's not like, it's like, oh, the sun's being weird. I should act weird. You don't have to do that. I mean, he did cause that plane to crash, so that's technically a crime, I guess. But he didn't really do a whole lot of crimes. Uh, but a third henchman grabs a gun and uh, is, you know, shooting bullets at Hawkman. But it hits Professor Kitsoff, which I guess that's what kills him, not uh, a mace, which has big spikes, like really big spikes on it, thrown straight in his face. That's not what killed him. It was the bullets. So the Hawkman buries him. 
And he says some final words. He says, a brilliant man who tried to rule the world. Did he? He never put out any demands or anything like that. He forgot that mankind in general is more important than one man. I guess. I, I Like, A, I don't know what the professor, how the professor was uh, gaining, benefiting from being weird with the sunspots. And also, B, I don't know how that's a crime and why he deserved to die. Because, I mean, as much as you want to say the bullet killed him, I think a mace straight to the face with those big spikes, like, that's a that's got to do at least close to death. I mean, the Hawkman is a strong dude. The dude, he, he can lift dudes over his head. But uh, that's the end of the the Hawkman story in Flash Comics number 8. So let's just talk briefly about Johnny Thunder, which is called Theater Madness. So... Johnny Thunder receives theater tickets from an unknown woman. He escorts his girlfriend, Daisy Darling, to the show, hoping that he can impress her. Johnny's mysterious contact requests that he pay special attention to the stage magician Hoko, H-O-C-O. Johnny goes on stage during Hoko's act and discovers that the magician is passing counterfeit money. How? Why? Doesn't matter. Stop asking questions. Uh, Johnny then exposes the crook and impresses Daisy with his detective skills. Good job, Johnny Thunder. Uh, I don't know how much Johnny Thunder we're going to go into. He does join the Justice Society. And maybe after that point in time, his adventures will become more like superhero-y. But until then, we're just going to be doing these sort of shorter summaries like we have been doing. Uh, I hope everyone's okay with that. Uh, but that is the that is the final story in Flash Comics number eight, and that is going to do it for this episode of Issue by Issue. Uh, as always, hit us up on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, threads, contemplating putting the episodes up on YouTube if that's what you're into. Um, eventually, we'll get around to that. Uh, I, I'm moving, so I'm everything's all complicated and, and messed up at the moment, but uh, we'll eventually get back to a more stable situation for me at least and then we can we can talk about that later but um be sure to rate and review the show on itunes and spotify and wherever tell your friends about it you know like maybe they're into it and that way you have more things to talk about with your friends because i mean eventually you run out of things to talk about why not talk about the weird adventures of hawkman and how he killed a dude uh, but I will see everybody on Friday for Issue by Issue Crisis. Here's a little spoiler. Uh, here's a little little foreshadowing. We are going to be getting into Crisis on Infinite Earths number two. That's right. We've made it to the second month of 1985, February. So it's 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 popping off over there on Friday. So if you're not a, if you're not a Friday listener, get on over there. It's like I said, popping off. But uh, until then, I'm your host as always, Nick Byers, and I will see you later. <laughs>